Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banner Podcast, where birders talk birding. When I interviewed my guest this week, Nick Bonono, he talked about an undertaking he's doing this year, a no-chase or self-found big year in Connecticut. And it got me to thinking about the trip I just got back from. I took off for five days to eastern Washington over the weekend and explored some areas I really hadn't been to before. They're not unknown areas by any means. They're places other people have birded, and I certainly used eBird to look at what I might find there. But it really wasn't a chase trip. It was a trip to have some new life roads, go some places I hadn't seen before, and just go birding. So I really had a nice trip. Started out heading north and went across the North Cascades Highway with stops in New Halem for the Black Swift, which I did see at the bridge there, and then went up to Washington Pass. Washington Pass is a less used pass than most of the others in Washington, but it's, uh, I think, around 5,700 feet and is just beautiful. I had uh, touched bases with David Patinga earlier, who had a spruce grouse there about a month ago, uh, and and heard where he found that, explored that area, didn't find the spruce grouse, but did find the fabulous meadow we talked about. It was just a beautiful place. Spotted sandpiper appeared to be breeding in the meadow, a bunch of birds just flitting around. It was really nice. And then walked up a little farther to the overlook, which is just spectacular. If you're going over the North Cascades Highway, you need to check out the overlook at Washington Pass. It's very nice. Uh, Got vistas there, looked around, and then headed down on the way to Republic. Republic is a little tiny town uh, in Ferry County. One of the the things I was trying to do on this trip was uh, do some birding in counties I hadn't birded much. Ferry County was low on my list of uh, species seen in in a county. And and so I stayed in Republic for the night. And from there, headed south down the Sandpoil River Valley. The Sandpoil River Valley is known in Washington as a place where you can find eastern U.S. specialties in Washington, which is obviously the western U.S. It has a lot of riparian habitat, and it's just lush. Uh, Habitat you just don't see in eastern Washington very much because it's dry in most of eastern Washington, but there it's just a lush river valley and just, you know, deciduous trees all over the place, just beautiful catbirds, lots of catbirds. I did not find the most desired species that I had for the trip. I was hoping uh, hoping to get northern water thrush for my year list and a few other things and really didn't find a lot of those, but I did find some spectacular places to see. Really nice birding. Probably the best bird on that part of the trip was a least flycatcher in an alder grove on one of the side roads there. Uh, so I had a nice trip there, headed down, cruised through the Sandpoil River Valley, stopped for lunch at a big meadow, Freelander Meadow, and, and a goshawk flew by, my goshawk of the, of the year, first of the year. That was nice. Uh, and got nice looks at a black bear foraging in one of the fields there. Had it went across and, and circled around to the Inchileum Ferry. It's a little free ferry across the Columbia at Inchileum. Uh, and it just it looks like it fills up on one side. When it fills up, it crosses. When it fills up on the other side, it crosses the other way. Not really on a schedule. Just maybe a 20-car ferry, maybe 30 cars. I don't know. It wasn't very big, but it was perfect. Got across the river and headed down to Spokane. Spokane is another county that I have birded, almost not at all. The only time I have a eBird list in Spokane County was when I stayed overnight there on the way to Glacier National Park with some friends and my wife a, a couple of three years ago. Anyway, that was a, a nice uh, trip then, but really didn't do any birding. And so I had had 10 birds in Spokane County prior to this trip. And, and so spent two nights in Spokane. Uh, the first day, we went up to... Uh, Mount Spokane. It's a state park. It's a big state park and very nice. Uh, I was quite impressed. Uh, We birded there uh, and just had a really nice time looking around, checking it out, taking a couple little hikes uh, and then back and made it a kind of an easy day, recovering from the big day day the day before. And then the next day, I got up and went down to Turnbull National Wildlife Refuge. If you haven't birded Turnbull. It's a, it's a place you ought to check out. It is just spectacular. It has a, a auto loop a little over five miles. And it's an auto loop where you can park and get out and hike and walk around and check out things. Just had a really, really nice trip around Turnbull. Highlight of that for me was a bull moose. It was a young, young bull moose uh, just uh, growing its antlers, uh, still in velvet, uh, just stomping around a little swamp there. Very nice. Uh, and uh, saw trumpeter swans on on one of the on one of the wet areas. Uh, not 
terrifically birdie, but very good. Very good. It had a nice smattering of Spokane County birds. And then on the way home, took a swing through Whitman County, just birded a couple of tiny little spots there because I hadn't birded that county at all. Uh, probably the most exciting thing of that trip was using my Delorme uh, to find some side roads and got into some wheat field side roads that were definitely two tracks and two tracks that probably hadn't been driven on in a year or two. And weeds were up about four feet high and couldn't really see the trail, but managed to get through and didn't get high centered or anything, got through and, and headed on back. Uh, so overall, a really nice Eastern Washington swing and made me think about the next undertaking of a no chase or self-found big year because I was pretty much not chasing, just looking around, finding birds and having a good time. Anyway, I really had a good time talking with Nick this week. I think you'll enjoy him. He is full of energy, has a lot of good thoughts, a lot of birding experience. So help me welcome to the Bird Banner Podcast, Nick Bonono. Welcome, Dick. Thanks for coming on the podcast today. Hi, Ed. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, I'd like to start the episodes by having you tell me your birding story. How did you get started in birding and, and sort of how have what's been big milestones of various things along the way for you? Yeah, so I was about 13 um, and my grandmother was in charge of watching me and my 10-year-old brother for like an entire day. Uh, and she was not sure what to do to entertain us. Um, but she, she ended up reading in the local newspaper that a pair of osprey had built a nest in Milford, Connecticut for the first time in decades. Um, and she thought it might be cool for us to go check out, check that out. It's kind of something different to do. Um, so, and she, she had no interest in nature or birds previously, should be noted. Um, so we went to this place, uh, that had a platform overlooking the marsh. And, you know, Osprey, they're very obvious on their man-made platforms most of the time. If you're going to see your first nest, it might as well be the biggest of all or just about. Yeah, can't miss that one. Um, so it was easy enough to see the birds coming and going, but that was all naked eye. Um, we didn't have optics on us or anything like that. Um, so I remember being interested to some degree, but it's not like I was particularly hooked at the time. So fast forward a couple months later same situation. My brother and I were spending the day with Grammy and she said, Hey, you know, why don't we go down and see how that Osprey family is doing? And this was probably, you know, late July, early August. Um, so we went, we went back to the spot. Uh, but this time we got lucky and there were burgers there and one of them had a scope and the nest really wasn't far to begin with. Um, so thanks to that scope, we got to see one of the adults bringing in a fish and feeding the begging young and got to Very see cool. all that up, up close and personal. Yeah, super cool. So I got to see those things in a completely different light. Um, and, and those birders, and thinking back on it, I really wish we had gotten their names because uh, I, I might not be a birder today without them, but uh, they, they told us, well, if you like this sort of thing, then you should go down to the nearby Coastal Audubon Center, where which always has lots of birds. Um, and they were referring to Milford Point, which is one of the top birding uh, destinations in the state. Very nice. Yeah. So I, I grew up in an urban environment uh, in, in the city of Bridgeport, Connecticut. So there was not much green in my neighborhood at all. Uh, so, so to me, birds were pigeons and crows, and that was about it. Um, but later that year, either for my birthday or Christmas, kind of my grandmother sort of picked up on my interest at the osprey thing. Um, they got me a Peterson field guide to Eastern birds and a pair of cheap $30. I think they were Tasco binoculars. Very nice. Um, I'm not even sure that company exists anymore, but um, I remember flipping through that, that book for the first time and seeing all these amazing birds and looking at the range maps and realizing that most of them actually occurred at some time of year in Connecticut, which I sort of assumed was a mistake at first. <laughs> Didn't know you were on the Eastern Flyway, did no, you? No, I had no idea. So that blew my mind. Um, that edition of the field guide had Northern Cardinal, Rose-Breasted Grosbeak, uh, and Evening Grosbeak on the cover. And I remember when I picked that book up for the first time thinking that those were exotic birds I would probably never see. Um, and I was just completely floored that I could potentially see all of them, you know, within a few miles of my house. Um, Very nice. So that sort of became a goal of mine. Probably my first mini listing goal was to maybe see all three of those cover species. Um, 
but given my background, it did not take much to impress me once I got out birding because I just remember being amazed to have this whole new world uh, opened right up for me. And that, that feeling lasted for quite some time. Very nice. Yeah. It's still it's the, the thrill of seeing a new bird never goes away. Never, never, never uh, becomes less of a thrill. Yeah. A new bird, especially if it's in a new habitat or a new location for you, it's, it's, it's still pretty magical. Um, but I guess one of the benefits of being a city kid, essentially with nature blinders on for 13 years was that mm-hmm. everything was new to me. So the threshold to fascinate me was pretty low. Yeah. I, I kind of felt Obviously, like that. there was some aptitude, some aptitude there, yeah. because it sounds like you just were hooked at the first bite. <laughs> yeah. And I don't really know how that works, <laughs> but it definitely happened with me. It did not happen with my brother who had the same experience as I did. Right. Um, but I, I kind of felt like that stereotypical kid who's sheltered his entire childhood and then goes off to college at 18 and is totally overwhelmed by the opportunity right. to cut loose and goes a bit overboard. So I dove headfirst into birding. Um, maybe borderline obsessed at times. Um, yeah, I think that's a common trait. Yeah, exactly. Especially with young people, it seems. Um, and uh, I do, I did maintain a pretty normal childhood otherwise. And my parents made sure of that. I did well in school, played sports, played video games with friends. Sure. But there were, there were lots of mornings when I would have a soccer game and would just think the whole time, boy, I bet today is a great migration day. Like I would, I would much rather be at Lighthouse Point right now. Did you go on a fair number of trips with the local Audubon, or how did you uh, how did you get into you know the scene? So it really started with my and my grandmother, who really fostered our our interest together. Kind of, they, they, they blossomed together. She got into it as well. Very cool. Um, so not terribly often, but maybe once or twice a season. Uh, at first, you know, she would take take me out into the right. And we would go down to like Milford Point, which is a great birding spot and also very close to where she lived. Um, and, uh, you know, you're birding, you're out in the field, you're meeting new people. So uh, you end up getting hooked up with with various folks. I Especially go to a popular spot like that. Yeah, exactly. I, I have way too many mentors to, to thank uh, than I could even list. But those early years, well before I had a driver's license, uh, Julian Hoff, Dory Sosensky, Andy Griswold, um, and Bruce Stevenson were probably the birders that took me out most often, especially Dory. I was pretty much attached to her hip on weekend mornings <laughs> for a few years there. She was sort of like the queen of Connecticut birding for quite some time. So every bird she knew about, she she really made an effort to try to get me life birds because she sort of lived vicariously through my enthusiasm as well. Isn't that fun? Yeah, um, yeah I'll never be able to repay her for that. Yeah, we have local birders here whose story parallels yours, and and some really good birders around who took them under their wing and got them going. So that's a that's a great service that uh, adult birders can can pay pay it forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I I plan to going forward to help some of the younger guys and girls out too. Um, been getting involved more, uh, helping lead trips with the Young Birders Club in Connecticut, which has formed recently. Did not exist when I was a young birder, but it's great that they right. have that that outlet. So you're pretty young. Do you fit? <laughs> <laughs> I have uh, I have too much gray hair to be uh, considered yeah. a young birder. I'm 35 now, so oh, yeah. uh, a lot yeah. of these a lot of these these. Uh, yeah, I know. teens and teens and early 20s are the oldest. Sure, I was, just, I was just trying to know. give you. Give you a little grief there. Oh, or a little credit, so, maybe. I appreciate that. Credit. That would work. Sure. That would work. So, Not too old hey, yet. Yeah, really. You have a blog, surebirder.com. Uh, sounds like you're surebirding today. Uh, uh, surebirding your sort of niche, or do you do all kinds of birding? Yeah, I think, so the blog I started in 2008, um, and I, I, I went with surebirder.com because I'd say that shorebirds, Right up there with with uh, seabirds and gulls are probably my favorites. But also, I do most of my birding on the shore, so I figured I am a bit of a shore birder. So, yeah, that kind of worked. Aptly named. Cool. You picked some of the tougher ones to to work with. It's not like uh, 
that is that is the fun and the agony of it. You leave way too. At least I leave way too many unidentified. But uh, it is it is it is. Those fun. are the best ones. Those are the best birds. They are. They are. I got out this morning to a little local place. Uh, Bruce Labar, friend of mine. Yesterday, it had for our county good birds. It had a had what he had a Casson's auklet, which is good for anywhere inland. Uh, but he also had uh, for some first of the year birds that I. Went to try to see semi-palmated uh, plover and and, uh, and uh, long-billed aucher, but I got there and I had an adult plumage uh, sanderling, which is pretty early for a returning sanderling here. And yeah. Gosh, I, I anguished over it. I, it took me two three minutes to sort of wrap my to open my brain to the idea that that's what it was. You know? Yeah, that's funny you say that. I had my first sanderling of the year today too, and. <laughs> You know, it was pretty bright orange, and it was. Every time you see one of those, it kind of can take your brain for a split second down. It, it does. Yeah, mine was quite a few split seconds, but yeah, I yeah. <laughs> figured oh, yeah. it out in a little bit. It's yeah. always the first one of the year that does that. Yeah. Okay, it's too big to be a peep. It's definitely a monster. Beside those least sandpipers, it's almost as big as a killdeer. It looks like it's not a pectoral. Oh, it's a sanderling. <laughs> it's a good thing. It's a good thing they're as big as they are, because if they were yeah. semi-palmated sandpiper, Western sandpiper size, it would be, yeah, it would be a lot yeah. harder. It would be hard, but it was fun. It was fun. Anyway, so you have your blog. Uh, is that a? Yeah, I've kept a blog over the years, and it, it it's maybe some people read it for, but me, it's kind of a a real convenient way to keep my birding notes, and I can find things more easily on that than I can in a notebook and things like that. Do you have a, a good following on that or is it more a labor of love sort of thing? Sure. Um, and it also doesn't matter so much to me in that I kind of do it for myself. And if anyone wants to take a look and read it, great. I hear you. I get, it's nice to get notes from people who are responding to posts. So you know that some people are checking it out. Some people's looking at it. Yeah. Um, but it just, the idea was just to have a place to be able to write about birding experiences and discuss identification issues and taxonomy and how weather affects migration and mm -hmm. you know the, the sort of stuff that's a bit too inside baseball or, or too wordy for general listserv type discussion yeah pro probably not that useful on uh on the facebook or on the you know i don't know what we have we have tweeters i don't know what your listserv there is but right there's yeah. something very similar it's a statewide um it's ct birds is what it is um, okay. But back back in 08, it was, you know, making a blog or website of your own was about the only outlet for that sort of thing other than the listserv. Yeah, that's, that's been yeah. a while. Tw yeah, 11 years, no Facebook, gosh. I don't think. Or it was about, yeah, it was about Facebook time probably. I wasn't on Facebook. Um, but, you know, social media wasn't quite what it is now. So now if you have something that you want to say about anything at all, uh, it's easy to find a forum and an audience. But I don't remember it being quite as easy as just a decade ago. You're right. You're right. Uh, you you uh, took a big trip to Alaska. I've uh, I read about the first uh, first installment, and just before we got on, I looked at your second one. Nome was your second one. Oh, I've been to Nome. Is it a magic place or what? Oh, oh it's my wonderful. Goodness. What what was your favorite kind of part or moment in your Nome birding? You know, I I it was one of my first big trips. Uh, Ken Brown, my best birding buddy, and I were on the trip. We were the young guys at the time, probably in our 40s, maybe, 30s or 40s. There were had, uh, seven of us in a seven-passenger van, cozy 17-day trip. Uh, and uh, so we got real real familiar with each other. But my, probably my favorite thing about Nome was just I, – I don't even know. There are three roads out of Nome, and I loved them all. I, I, I think the trip – I can't remember the name of it. The one you go to the mountain where you get the bristle thigh, bristle thigh curlew, and the there was a whole grove of willows along there. We had a blue throat, and just that was pretty That's special. Those three roads that radiate out of town are—they're all different. You know, they all offer unique yeah. species to see, yeah. which is they do. It's almost like yeah, oh, yeah. quite different yeah, habitats for each of them. Pipe, but um, <laughs> you know, Cougarock Road is or Cougaric Road. I never pronounced that right. Yeah, I, I, I call it Cougar Rock, too. I'm not sure how you say it. Is that the one that goes north to the little Aleutian village? We didn't go all the way to the end. 
Um, okay. The Teller Road goes ends up at a village. That might be the one. That's okay. That goes north. Maybe that's the one. I, I lose. It's been a long time. I can't remember the names. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think yeah, I think the Teller Road. But yeah, even the the tundra types on the Cougar Rock Road versus Teller Road are are different. And you're seeing, you know, Pacific Golden Clover on on one of the roads predominantly, and then you know only American Golden. On I remember the that. Roads I remember that. And it looks pretty much the same. You're not sure why. <laughs> And I, I remember, you know, the gulls nesting in trees, which seems so strange to me. I think, was it Bonaparte's gulls, I think, or yeah, in the trees? Yeah, yeah. It's just all, all the experience. The lack of long spurs just fluttering down everywhere you looked. It was Yeah, uh, yeah. they're just abundant. They were almost pests at times, I feel. But they're yeah. just- I, I was there for the summer solstice. I was there on June 21st. Uh, and what I remember is like, Oh, you got to shut it down. You got to get some sleep. <laughs> it's hard to do. Because I mean, I remember, you know, every is. night that we were out, we used to like to end the day at the Nome River mouth, which is this little okay. tidal estuary, mm-hmm. um, great spot. There's lots of turnover there, lots of gulls, turns and shorebirds coming and going. Mm-hmm. Uh, we even had a short-tailed shearwater come and make a, some close passes by the beach. Just a really active Very spot. Nice. Yeah, the, the kind of place where you feel like anything could drop in. And it's... 11 o'clock at night and the light <laughs> yeah. is just beautiful and you it don't, is it's almost the best light of the day it is i mean it's just yeah yeah it is it's, it's like you, morning and evening light here yeah it's just you, really nice you don't want to stop it's really hard to stop there was actually a a, a day uh and night and day uh, up in uh um, uh-huh. barrow or uh Utiavik, um when we were there for the solstice where basically the sun's just spinning around in the sky all day, where we mm-hmm. stayed out for, you know, through the afternoon and then through the night and then kept going the next day. You know, wow. it's just the weather was the weather. We happened to hit really good weather up there and we wanted to take advantage of it. Sure. It's, it's, it's a, you'll never regret going. It's, it's one of the great places for birding in the ABA for sure. Yeah, I agree. And I, I have a couple of friends who, make the argument that, oh, you know, I'm not going to get many lifers. Why would I go to Alaska? I can see a lot of those birds in migration. You know, what's my trip total going to be? 150, 170. But that's that's not what it's about to me. I think it's no. this quality of the birds, the plumages that they're in, all the shorebirds displaying. And just the experience. Just the, I mean, yeah. you know, it, to not go to Alaska when you have the opportunity to go to Alaska, why would you uh, not? It's I just, would recommend it to anyone. Yeah, uh, for sure. How long are we there, Nick? It's two weeks. It's a full two weeks. Yeah, that's about what it takes. And we didn't even. Get I, off I saw the you did some of the same routes that I took. I I took that. Uh, what is it called? The the road that dirt road that long dirt road from north of Anchorage all the way over to uh, the big mountain. It's got a new name, Denali. Denali. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I did that on my own before I caught up with the rest of the group. I I was able to sneak up there a few days before my work schedule allowed. And uh, I just just had a blast uh, in the park. And again, it's not the most birdie place, but, you know, you can't complain about Northern Hawk Owl and Three Toed Woodpecker. Uh, You you did better than I did there. We we didn't get that many birds at Denali, but boy, we had a terrific grizzly bear experience. Oh, my goodness. We stopped on the ride back down, you know, in the little school bus sort of thing they use there. We stopped at one of the four or five places you pick people up at. They have those big porta-potties there. They're on a concrete platform. And we pull in, and they're like, I don't remember, four, five, six grizzly bears wandering around the just all around us. They just wander up to the bus and sniff and wander over. And they'd stand up on the porta potties and bang their legs on it. And and uh, and the bus driver just waited and waited and waited. And we're like, what what he's waiting so long for? There's nobody here. And the Beersley Bears walk, walk off and he toots his horn and about five people pour out of every porta potty. <laughs> it was the craziest That's thing. Wild. We we actually I missed grizzly bear in Denali, which I gathered was kind of hard to do. Um, Yeah, they were all over the place when I was there. Yeah, I I took the uh, you know the basically an eight hour round trip bus tour in. Um, Right, we did the same. It ended up being a longer trip just because we got out to do some some birding and walking around, and there was a jerk falcon on a nesting on a cliff there that was cool to see. 
Yeah, um, I didn't get jeer my whole time in Alaska, mm, so yeah, you so did well. They can be tough. Uh, but the, after not seeing it that day, um, early the next morning, I, I ended up driving in. You know, they, they do allow cars in the first, you know, 12, right. 12 to 15 miles or whatever it is. And went in uh, basically just after sunrise and just in, in hopes and scoped as many hillsides as I could and couldn't pick one up. Hmm. You know, every trip is different, they isn't are. it? That's part of the joy. Good. So uh, you also uh, have an Africa trip coming up, and and it looked like it, it's with the Connecticut Audubon Society. Our our Audubon doesn't really lead have trips other than you know local day trips. How does that work with Connecticut Audubon? How how's that all coming together? Yeah, so it's been in the works for a while. Um, the Connecticut Audubon Society which is an independent Audubon society. So not to be confused with a local chapter of National Audubon. Right, right, right. Maine is the same. It's a nonprofit uh, organization founded in 1898. um, And they began offering local field trips uh, back to the 50s. And then in the 70s, expanded to more ambitious domestic trips. Um, International Mm -hmm. trips started in the 80s. Um, and, okay. and what we call the eco travel department, um, as we know it today, really got going in the mid nineties and has really taken off under the leadership of Andy Griswold, um, to the point where it now offers 60 day trips and over 25, uh, overnight trips every year, domestic wow. and wow. international. Um, and the focus that's, is, that's, that's terrific. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great company or it's a great group, I should say organization. Um, the focus is not only on the wildlife. In the locations, but also how the environment shapes local culture and how humans interact with the environment and any relevant conservation issues, um, in addition to some good old hardcore birding. Um, and uh, any, any surplus dollars raised um, by the program do support the organization's environmental education and conservation mission, which is really nice. That's terrific. That's terrific. Yeah. So that's terrific. That's terrific. The local, so, where so where are you going? Yeah, so we're going to be doing. Um, some sub-Saharan Africa stuff, um, Namib- okay. Namibia and some surrounding countries. And it's, I think it's about two weeks. I don't have a whole lot of detail on the trip yet. Um, I will really start to prep for it when, you know, we officially have enough folks for it to run. Um, but we're talking about, you know, Pell's fishing owl and African finfoot and Turicos and obviously some of the megafauna. Yeah. So, like yeah. you know, if yeah. you haven't been to Africa, all new families. Yeah, I've I've been to East Africa and Morocco, but I have not been to Sub-Saharan Africa. So yeah, so I'm looking forward to it. That's in I want to say late February into early March of 2020. Um, so it's not that far away. Yeah, seven eight months, something like that. Right around the corner. Good for you. That's a, always good to have something exciting to look forward to. Yeah. And the way that we use, I know you had asked how, sort of how these things come together. The domestic trips are all run by, led by eco-travel volunteers, you know, experienced North American birders. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the international trips, we usually have two leaders. We have the, a first leader that is a local guide and a second leader, which is one of the eco-travel uh, volunteers. So I would fill into the second right. leader role for a trip to Africa, say. Okay. So you, you work okay. with the local folks. That's, I think that's pretty standard. It, it has, besides local expertise, it, some safety issues that are addressed with that too. So th- that's been the way both of my Africa trips have been like that. They've had a local guide, sometimes local for the whole trip and sometimes local for each spot you went right. to. Yeah. It's, I think it's a great way to do it. It's the way to go. It is. It, it, it it expands the birding environmental economy in countries. It, it's good for a lot of things. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember when I was on my Kenya trip, one of the, one of the coolest things we saw, it was an Eagle Isle. I can't remember. There are a bunch of Eagle Isles there, but it was an Eagle Isle we went to see. And uh, the, the culture in the tribe in that area was that owls were evil that they, you know, if an owl, if you heard an owl hoot, they'll put in a, tr- a, a trance on you or some sort of spell on you. And if you had a chance, you wanted to kill any owls that you saw because they were bad luck and all of this. And 
Uh, and that was all being changed by a couple of local birders who had the seagull owl staked out and, and brought people come to it. So he had all the local children kind of checking it out in the morning and he gave them all a little bit of money. And it was, it kind of changed the whole nature of how people looked at owls instead of some evil voodoo sort of thing. It was a really cool animal that he taught them about. And so it really made a difference. Yeah. That's great to hear. A lot of times it does come down to money. If you show yeah, that the yeah, local sure. economy is supported, then it could completely, you know, folks can pull a total 180 on how they, they view wildlife from nuisance to, you know, friend. Yes, for sure. Nick, you've done some Connecticut big days. What's a Connecticut big day like? I, uh, I've not done a big day on the East Coast. Uh, migration must be a lot of things to see there. Oh, it's crazy and hectic, like, probably like most big days. Um, yeah, yep, yeah. The, Reuben, the Raven Lunatics is our team name. Um, we do an annual statewide big day. We've probably been doing it for most of the last 10 years or so, a group of five of us. It's a big highlight of our year. Uh, we get really into it. it. takes a lot of effort and preparation. Um, we all usually take about a week or more of scouting um, in advance mm -hmm. of you know, a wow. narrow window. Of and you have a fairly small state. Connecticut's not a – I mean – compared to Washington, is not a big state. So at least you don't have to drive thousands of miles. Right. So you, pro you probably do a fair number of maybe town or county big days in Washington with a state that big? Yeah. Yeah. We do. Uh, uh, Bruce LaBar, a friend of mine and I, did last year we did a county big day every month of the year. So that was that was kind of a fun. Because there were, there were like only two or three counties that had a formal big day list submitted for every month of the year. And so we just decided we would try to do it in a year. That was really fun. So were there prior totals listed for many months in your county or were most of them new? Uh, no. Uh, actually, we have a website, Washington Birder, and it, they keep it's kind of the records keeping place for Washington and they they have they're pretty avid county birders who run that and they put up an, and Pierce before last year had just May this I mean that's the the big month you can get a big list in and nobody had done them in any other month so we definitely at least for a little while hold the record for 11 months of the good year. for you I we've done almost exclusively May big days and every year we talk about expanding to other months and it just gets puts it, it is a it's a completely different experience and and it for me it, it really helped me think about what's where when all of that sort of thing you know what what's possible how do you time management is always a huge part of any big day and so uh, what you know our route sort of was similar throughout the year, but how much time you spent in different habitats completely changed. Yeah. There's no sense looking at no sense looking out on the Puget Sound in July because you're just not gonna see it or June. You're just not gonna see anything. Sounds like Long Island South here. Uh, but I bet you it gives you a, a good uh, really good appreciation of how things change so much just from one month to the next. It does. It does. I mean, you know, here in in May, if you have a really good big day for the county, we could get 130 species, maybe more if you have a really good day. But to get 80 in February is really tough. That's awesome. You know? Yeah. So the longstanding Connecticut record was 186, which mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. this was in May, um, which I think was set back in or, or around 1996. And, and mm -hmm. that record stood for a while until we broke it in 2011. Um, and Honestly, looking back on it, the the one eighty six number that that those guys pulled off before the age of eBird and smartphones oh, oh, was so it's a different, probably more impressive than anything we've been able to do so far. Um, yeah, yeah. resource. I mean, you just had to go find your own birds. There was no. Yeah. yeah so yeah. so in twenty eleven, we ended up getting one ninety two, um, which was a new Ooh. record, and then last year um, we ended up with. 193 so that's where the state mark currently stands um, mm -hmm. and now our goal is and you know personal experience makes a difference you know you 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 get a feel for when do you quit when do you move on when do you dig in and try harder it, no kidding all yeah. of those type and, of things and our, and you refine your route every year you say gosh you know we we always go to this place but there's no birds we get there that we didn't get somewhere else seven out of eight times we should skip that you know I mean, right you, and our just, our average is ticking up every year 
as we, you know, you refine things, you refine the route, you tweak the strategy just a little bit every year and yes. you kind of yes. put yourself in better position. Now our goal has become to reach 200, which mm. would mm. take a whole lot of luck and effort, but is doable. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. yeah. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. A lot of it is luck. And if, if you hit, hit it right, you get four or five unexpected birds and don't miss any of the ones you shouldn't miss. That's what it yeah. takes. Uh, this is actually kind of a strange year. Um, this 2019 effort so there was the the migration timing in connecticut was a bit odd in that there was not a very broad overlap between early migrants and late migrants like we had gotten in recent years so there was no mm. perfect day that combined good numbers of the early stuff and the late stuff um, which would have allowed us to to threaten 200 um, and we also took a gamble on predicting the arrival of our last breeding species which are a couple species mm. of flycatcher so Based mm. on weather analysis and eBird maps, we were yeah. sort of banking on Alder Flycatcher and Eastern Wood Peewee to arrive on the day that we chose. But of course, we, you don't know that till you're actually out day. in the field. Um, and uh, <laughs> they, they the, next the day. day after. <laughs> so uh, we miscalculated by a day. It cost us a couple of easy breeders. It, it, it's always the, for us, it's always, if you wait, it's really tough to get the waterfowl on the west side here waterfowl are tough after about the end of april boy it's tough to get waterfowl you can still get them but it's a onesie or a twosie and you got to be lucky if you wait till the 15th of may boy it's almost impossible to get those but this eight or ten new breeders that are here so you have to yeah. it's it's always a and honestly a lot of our scouting in may ends up looking for a lingering waterfowl those ones and twos because that's all yeah. you got yeah, that's um, yeah. So we do waterfowl and seabirds too, probably. Yeah, well, <laughs> seabirds. We are Connecticut is is a bit blocked by Long oh, Island. Okay. So it is the Atlantic Ocean, but it's not the open mm. Atlantic. So seabirds, the true seabirds, pelagic birds. We you just don't have a spot are, to get them. We're SOL with them most of the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, that, that waterfowl, that lingering waterfowl is, is key to, to bumping your number up. So we hit 189 this year, which is still quite good. Um, it's become about our average in recent uh -huh. years uh, as we kind of start to pick this out a little bit more. Big days are fun and yet incredibly consuming, exhausting and consuming. Yeah, if you want them to be, absolutely. We definitely go all out most years um, and I, I think if we ever hit 200 then we'll probably take a good long break <laughs> yeah. retire on your laurels maybe do it more for fun at that point. so nick you've birded washington a little bit you mentioned that you're a friend of uh, ryan merrill and have been out here birding where have you been in washington oh i've uh, mostly west of the cascades i've probably birded out there about four times or so a couple times to visit mm -hmm. ryan and bird with him Mm -hmm. um, we both went to school and uh, college in right. Massachusetts, so I know him from there. Right. Um, but uh, you know, I, I Washington actually I tell people all the time is my favorite birding state. Uh, the the variety of habitats in pretty close um, proximity to one another, and even the mountain ranges are very different from one another. And you have the Olympics, which are just so darn wet, and you know if you, you want to escape to see some sun and some you know. Get some dry country birds you just go east of the cascades and you feel like you're in a whole it, different you know, state a lot of people in eastern washington want to make it a separate state so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah really there's a movement that's probably not going to happen but anyway oh, oh yes it's called liberty they want to call eastern washington they want to secede from the state and call themselves liberty i'll have to look that up that we definitely good. have two more it would be one more red state if that happened <laughs> Yes, I, you know, my mind already went yeah. there. Yep. Um, but Washington's fantastic. You know, you have such great pelagic birds. Oh, for too. sure. I did. I've done one of the oh, Westport sure. pelagics. Have you been on a Westport pelagic trip? Yeah, yeah. just once. Just once so yeah. far. I was signed up for for a winter one on a different date. Yeah, it's about a one chance in three on the winter trips if you're lucky. Yeah, that's what they that's what they had told me. So I was happy to. Yeah. Oh, we had the winter trip this year was incredible, just incredible. They they didn't run it till March, uh, and it got out, and it was a pretty nice day. And we had two 
two short-tailed albatross. Uh, we had three or four laissons albatross. It was just, oh, what a day. That's fantastic. Yeah, the, the one that I had been out on, which was, I want to say, late mm-hmm. April a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I still needed fork-tailed storm petrel, and we just had a great show. Yeah, you're lucky. We awesome. did not get them on our ma- March trip, but it was a little early. Yeah, and um, we had a laysan, which was fantastic. Yeah. Really happy to see that bird. That was a life. Good for you. Too, so. Good for you. So, what do you have? Uh, what's exciting besides going to Africa for you in the next few months? Do you have any big trips planned? I don't have any trips for the rest of 2019 as of now. Um, but sort of apropos to that, I am currently halfway through a self-sound big year uh, in Connecticut. Self-sound. Explain to me. Yeah. Well. That might take a while. <laughs> As I found, there's more of a gray area than I expected. Um, so you can call it a self-found big oh, year. Oh, self-found. Uh, maybe. I, I thought you said south yeah. sound. Self-found. Okay. Oh, For, nope. In other words, not getting Sorry. them off eBird. Going there, just going birding and finding them yourself. I get it. Finding your own I birds. Yep. You can call it self-found. You can call it chase-free. Mm-hmm. Um, that mm-hmm. might be accurate mm-hmm. too. Um, there, there are no current ABA rules as to what constitutes a self-found bird, so I've had to make part of this up as mm-hmm. I go along. Um, for instance, I I didn't really want this to, to be an antisocial effort. I don't think it has sure. to be. Um, so sure. I'll count whatever birds my party sure. finds, uh, even if I'm sure. not the one to spot the bird first. Of course. Know? I don't want to spend the entire year birding by myself. What's the Could fun get a little that? lonely. Yeah, the whole idea to me is one of original discovery. Sure. So I don't think you need sure. to remove the social aspect to keep that intact. Um, but in case the ABA someday does develop specific self-found rules and this becomes more of a thing, then I'll be able to adapt my total to their standards because keeping I'm keeping notes. a pretty detailed spreadsheet. Yeah, exactly, of all the circumstances of, of everything. So what's your number so far? So what's your number so far? Uh, I just did 250 wow. today. Wow. That's great. And my, I want to say my actual year list, according to eBird, is somewhere in the upper 250s. So I've done no chasing. I've been pretty much all self-bound birding. Um, And can't waste your time on a chase when you've got a different goal in mind. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, I haven't gone quite as all out as I could have. Um, I've become a, a big fan of maintaining balance in life, so I haven't gotten too obsessive with it. But it's great. I mean, imagine a big year without any pressure of chasing. Yeah, that, that's nice. You know, I get to go entirely at my you own You pretty pace. much go to, you know, you want to just get all the habitats in over and over. I would think that's the primary, primary tactic. It's already brought me to several places in the state that I would not have previously gone birding, even though it's a small state, still finding new spots. So, something, um, Nick, I've been learning about is the using the NEXRAD radar sort of thing. I, I have not figured out how to use it. I don't think it's certainly not used out here. I don't know if it works in the West or really only works where there's a real condensed flyway. Do you use that much in terms of good deciding where to go and when to go? I do. Um, at just sort of as an adjunct, you know, um, after looking at weather maps uh, and you're looking at where precipitation is and wind speed and direction, you can usually predict pretty well when the good flights are going to occur. But it's really nice to have the next red that actually is live at mm-hmm. night see, to confirm or deny your suspicions as to whether there's going to be a lot of stuff moving. The, the tough part with that on the East Coast is, is actually trying to figure out exactly where those birds are going to be found in the mm-hmm. morning. Because you can have big waves of birds that come through the western part of the state, even a small state like Connecticut, but it's much quieter in the eastern part of the state. And you get a little bit of extra clue on how that's happening with the, with the radar. So oftentimes, if I get up really early, you know, pre-dawn uh, to spend a day in the field, I'll check the last few hour loop just to see the volume of birds in the air and um, also their trajectory. How do you learn to use that? I, I've, I, I, I sound 
probably foolish, but I've I've tried to get on that. It's just it's a blur to me. I, I haven't figured out how to make sense of it. Do you just te- get someone to show you how, or do you how'd you learn to use it? Yeah, yeah, that I definitely didn't figure it out myself. Um, I. I'm sure someone on the internet posted a primer on how to use radar for bird migration. And it's one thing to have someone to tell you how to use it. Um, but then you actually have to practice, you know, reading yourself and, you know, predicting what you're going to see in the field that day and then going out in the field and confirming or denying whether your interpretation of right. radar was correct or not. Yeah. So, so um, I'm going so to Maine uh, on Thursday visiting my family. I think I'm going to try to look at the radar. I know it fall. I don't know if this time of year it's of any use or not, but I'll take a look and see what I can tell. Yeah. I'll send you, I'll send you a good link with a little, some, some notes as well. That'd be great. Very helpful. I'll add that to the podcast notes for anyone who's listening too. Good. Good. So uh, do you have any uh, advice or things you want to make sure people hear that, you know, words of wisdom from Nick Bonomo? I guess that um, I'll save the cliche stuff, right? Um, There is one sort of, call it a bit of an issue in the birding community right now um, that sort of declared itself over the last few years. Uh, which is the scatteredness of bird recording. Um, Back just a handful of years ago, a a birder used to be able to have his or her finger on the pulse of regional bird sightings by simply checking listserv Mm -hmm. reports. So on on listservs, birders will post messages about their highlights, which might include uncommon species or just general notes about migration events. Um, But listserv use, I've noticed, has really faded um, in the wake of the rise oh, of eBird. Oh, certainly has in Washington. Yeah, and other alternatives, um, Facebook, Twitter, even private text message groups, things that really don't see the light of day to most of the birding community. So because these reports are scattered all over the place now, uh, there's no one centralized spot to find out what's being seen right. where. So it actually right. takes more work than ever <laughs> to have your finger on the pulse of regional bird sighting. So it's becoming harder instead of I don't know easier. about more than ever, maybe more than in your lifetime. <laughs> sure. Yes. Thanks for putting that in perspective. You're totally right on. Um, but I definitely get a bit frustrated by that. Because uh, at this point in my life, I don't have time to sit on the computer all day checking half a dozen right. sources for local bird sightings. Um, but I would love to see uh, a centralized location sort of rise to the top again, um, or maybe some sort of website or app that could bring all these reports into one place so they can be easily read by the mass. Do you have a feel for how that could and happen? I I, well, I think ideally um, this would be some future iteration of mm-hmm. eBird, um, way down the line probably. I mean, eBird is, I think, the most important place birders can submit mm-hmm. their sightings because the data can be used scientifically. Yeah, it's completely open. It's backed yeah, up it's securely. Yeah, it's open and already immensely popular. Um, currently, you can subs- subscribe on eBird to hourly email right. alerts for rare birds. Um, but the website is not set up for quick parsing of local reports. Um, it's a really time-intensive process, scrolling through each checklist individually to find what you're looking for. Right. And there are some great, great nuggets hidden in those checklists, but you really have to dig for a lot of them. Um, and if you have any questions for the observer, there's generally no way to communicate directly with Hunter. Yeah. eBird could um, be a social media site. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm thinking maybe at some point in the future, there can be a community as- aspect to eBird that could include a forum for discussion among the community and among the eBird users. So maybe messages could be sent to one another, you know, with private usernames sure. via a, a third-party messaging service. You know, or, or, or users could post quick public messages with highlights or migration notes as they would on a listserv. Because um, I think there's a lot of stuff that gets buried in eBird checklists that most people don't get around to see. So if I'm in the field and I note a particularly strong flight of, say, migrating hawks lifting off right. of the day, or while I'm checking inland fields in the morning, I realize that last night's storms knocked down a bunch of migrant shorebirds. 
I can shoot a message to the eBird community with a subject line that indicates that some event is happening so people can go out and check it out. Yeah, that would, <clears throat> that would be, I don't and, and I thought that eBird could even start sending text messages in addition to emails for yeah. select things. Maybe that would be, Oh, we have the technology. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, if, if you, you know, the alternative is if you only use eBird and you just submit those birds in your eBird checklist, unless a particular species is flagged as rare and people are signed up for alerts, there might be no indication to the general public that any special event is going on right. at that moment. So the technology definitely exists. I, I don't think anything is imminent as far as I know, um, but you know, it's not eBird's priority to get something like that done and, and you know, nor should it be right now. I mean, I, I know they're working on much more important stuff such as building and improving the quality of their database um, and I bet they could use even way yeah. more help getting they, that They could done certainly use way more money, which would get them way more help. As, yeah, yeah. So as, that's, that's, this is, I think, down, down the line, if ever. Good um, to hear somebody thinking outside the box, though. I like that. Yeah, it, you know, hopefully it can be done before too long. And if may, you know, I may start to reach out to folks and explore options to maybe get something like that done. I am not a techie in in any way i don't really know much about how this stuff works um just you know as a layman but you know maybe maybe we can get something it would be fun it would be fun that's a nice idea that's a nice idea Nick. i appreciate that uh how can people reach out to you is it do you, i didn't check on your website is there a way people can uh, send a message to you or contact you on the website or do you have social media uh handles you want to share or yeah i so I think I have a link to my email address on my blog, which is www.shorebirder.com. Okay. Um, and uh, my email address is my first initial and last name. So it's N-B-O-N-O-M-O. -O -O. It's Nick Bonomo um, at gmail.com. Um, and I don't, I don't really have much of a social media presence, to be honest. I, I did create a pseudo fake Facebook <laughs> <laughs> profile just for the sole purpose of being able to monitor, uh, bird sure. groups, discussion right. groups. Um, and my, right. my handle on, uh, on Facebook is, uh, Nick Shorb, S H O R B. Okay. Makes sense. Nick Shorberger, Nick yeah. Shorb. I went, I went with, I went with Shorberger first because I figured it would just be an easy one to link to the blog. But it didn't take Facebook long to figure out that that wasn't someone's real last name. <laughs> really? Yeah. So they sent me a note and they said, well, either prove that you're this person or change your name. So okay. Good. Good. So Nick Shorb works just fine. Good for you. Okay. Yeah. Well, Nick, thanks so much for being my guest today on the Bird Banner Podcast. I appreciate it. It's been fun talking to you. Nice to hear an East Coast perspective on things. And uh, let me know if there's any way I can be of help to you. Oh, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much, Ed. Okay, take care now. Bye-bye. You too. Enjoy the rest of your summer. Well, that wraps up the Bird Bader Podcast, episode number 24 with Nick Bonono. One of the things I love about doing this podcast is I get to talk to really good birders with really interesting thoughts that I otherwise probably wouldn't have sat down and talked to for a while. So good for me. Anyway, if you want to check out the podcast notes, there'll be a link to Nick's website uh, and to his semi-anonymous Facebook page. Uh, in addition, I'll try to put supporting links for anything that we talked about during the podcast. So until next time, birders, good birding, good day.